Madam Chairman, my dear brethren and sisters, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our brother James has reminded us we were considering the first week in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. We completed our considerations last week upon the third day where the Lord Jesus Christ had gained his first three converts. The Apostle John, the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Andrew. Not of course that they were apostles at that time but they had become his first three converts having received them from the hand as it were of John the Baptist. As we continue on through this first chapter of John we see that the Lord gains two further converts before we get to the end of the chapter. And as we look at these first five men that the Lord Jesus Christ gathered around himself it's interesting to see the different characters of those those men and the different ways in which the Lord dealt with them and drew them unto himself. We have Peter, the impetuous young fisherman, whom the Lord Jesus Christ revealed to him, that through the influence of his word he would change him. He would give him a change of name and character, and that Peter would become the rock. And now in verse 43 we, we learn that we're introduced to the fourth day of that week, the day following. The day preceding day being the third day of that week, we're on the fourth day of the week. We read now that Jesus would go forth into Galilee and he findeth Philip and saith unto him, Follow me. And so in the fourth day of the week we learn that Jesus would go forth. The word would go signifies that he chose, he wished or he desired. It was his choice now to move away from Bethabara, to move away from John, having received his first disciples at the hand of John. The Lord now purposed to leave Bethabara and travel north up into the regions of Galilee. We find in particular he went to the town of Cana, a little town some five or six miles away from Nazareth where he had grown up and, and spent the first 30 years of his life. But we read that he findeth Philip. The implication, I suppose, of the verse is that he finds Philip before he leaves Bethabara. It may be that he found him on the, on the journey up because Philip also, we learn from verse 44, was of Bethsaida, a town of Galilee, up upon the shores of Galilee, not really very far from Nazareth or Cana. It may be that he found Philip before he left. It may be that he found him on the way. We don't know. For it is interesting that we're told that he findeth Philip. Now that word findeth is, in, is exactly the same word and in exactly the same tense as we find it in both verse 41 and uh, verse 45. In verse 41 we, we find the word used, he first findeth his own brother Simon. We know of course that, that um, Andrew, having found the Lord Jesus Christ and, and where he lived, the first thing that he did was to go off and find his brother Simon and bring Simon to the Lord as well. 
And so Andrew went and sought for Simon and found him. In verse 45, a verse that we shall look at shortly, we read, Philip findeth Nathanael and said unto him. And we learn from the narrative that Nathanael was hidden away under a fig tree. And so Philip had to go and seek him out and find him to bring him to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's exactly the same word and exactly the same tense used there in verse 43 where we read that that, that, that Lord Jesus Christ findeth Philip. And the implication is that this wasn't just an accidental finding. It wasn't just that they happened to bump into one another on the road. It implies that the Lord Jesus Christ sought Philip out and found him and called him to follow him. You know, as we look at Philip as he as he's presented in the in the uh, scriptures, we find that Philip appears to have been a, a naturally retiring, timid sort of a person. In John chapter twelve, we get a little glimpse of Philip. John chapter twelve and verse twenty-one, or, or um, reading from verse twenty. The time is that the Lord Jesus Christ is uh, up at Jerusalem at a certain feast time. And we read that there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. So Philip cometh and telleth Andrew. And again, Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. You see, it seems that, that, that Philip needed the support of Andrew before he would actually make the approach to the Lord Jesus Christ himself and introduce these Greeks under him. And and Philip immediately looked for the support and the help of Andrew when this situation came upon him. And the implication perhaps of that is that Andrew, that Philip, was a naturally timid, retiring type of man. Now, as we look at Philip, particularly as he appears here in this first chapter of John, there's not a shadow of a doubt that Philip was absolutely thoroughly prepared to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. He appears in this first chapter of John as a, as a very deep student of the Word of God. He was a, um, a disciple of John, the fact that he'd left Bethsaida and gone down to Bethabara shows that he'd almost certainly gone there to hear the preaching of John. And Philip, by his knowledge of the, of the scriptures, by the preaching of John, had been completely prepared to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet we find Philip down there at Bethabara at the same time as Andrew, John and Peter. And yet it's necessary for the Lord to seek him out and to find him. You see, perhaps Philip lacked the self-confidence to go and seek out the Lord for himself. We don't know. These are things that only imply. The implications of these things are that perhaps that was the case. Although he was a man with a very beautiful mind for the things of the truth, it seems that he lacked that little bit of personal drive and push that, that Andrew, Peter and John all had. And Philip seemed to hang back and lack the confidence perhaps to to go up and introduce himself personally to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And there we find the Lord seeking Philip out. He finds Philip. He's aware that he's there among the company somewhere. And he goes and seeks him out. And he breaks down those natural barriers that that perhaps were holding Philip back. It's interesting to look at the words that the Lord Jesus Christ speaks to Philip. They're very few. There's only two words recorded. Follow me. Those are the words of Christ to Philip at that time. Follow me. And the word follow there, as we just put a few brief notes upon the sheet there, a word of echo lucio, it means to be a follower. But Bullinger says it is used especially of soldiers, slaves and pupils. You see, it's used of soldiers because they must loyally follow their captain or commander, even to death, if need be. Slaves have to attentively follow the instructions of their masters. Pupils have to give diligent attention to follow the teaching and instruction of their teachers. And these are the ways and the implications carried with this word. Concerning this word, Acho Lucio, Vine says that in the Gospels it occurs 77 times used of following Christ and only once is it used otherwise. So 77 times in the four Gospel records this word appears and is used of people following the Lord Jesus Christ. Now when we look at a couple of, one or two quotes as the way it is used in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 22 for example we see that the, this call to follow Christ was one that really made some very severe demands upon a person. Matthew 16 and verse 22 uh, it, it, it's not verse 22 it's verse 24 Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. Now that word follow is is the same word that we're looking at here. But you see, to follow the Lord Jesus Christ demanded that a person deny himself, take up his cross, be prepared to lose his life that he might gain it in the kingdom age. Now we look at Matthew chapter 8, verses 19 to 21. We find the word used again. Matthew 8, verses 19 to 21 we read, And a certain disciple came and said unto him, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. Jesus saith unto him, The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has not where to lay his head. Another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said unto him, Follow me and let the dead bury their dead. 
You see, the Lord Jesus Christ is showing here the implications of following him. It really demanded a life of total commitment, putting all else behind and seeing the Lord Jesus Christ in front and following him. Of course, we read of the apostles in Matthew 19, verses 27 to 28, that they were men who did follow the Lord Jesus Christ We read in Matthew 19, verse 27, Then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So that if the apostles forsook all, they denied themselves, they took up their cross, they followed the Lord Jesus Christ and they will reap a rich reward in the kingdom age. Now that gives us some idea of the demands of being called upon to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And when when the Lord sought out Philip and said unto him, follow me, it was far more than just an invitation to accompany him on the journey up to Galilee. It was a call to discipleship. Interesting, when we look at the meaning of Philip's name, Philip means a lover of horses or or, or of warfare. Hence it implies a warrior. And if Philip was to be a faithful warrior for Yahweh, he must throw in his lot and follow the captain of his salvation. And the Lord Jesus Christ was calling Philip, I believe, calling him to the position of a spiritual warrior. It would seem that Philip's natural temperament and disposition was unsuitable to be a warrior We believe that the power of Yahweh's word working in him and the association he had with the Lord Jesus Christ and the other of the apostles enabled him to overcome the weaknesses of his own nature and we believe that Philip did become a faithful spiritual warrior fighting the warfare of Yahweh. You know, Peter, Andrew and John they didn't really receive the full call to discipleship until a later later date. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 20, we read there, at a later time, when we get to to uh, this verse, the Lord Jesus Christ, he's been up to Cana, across to Capernaum, he's gone back down to Jerusalem, uh, to, to keep the feast of Passover, which was two and a half, three months, still in the future from this time. He travelled back up to Samaria and he come back up into Galilee before this event recorded in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 20 takes place. And having accomplished all that, the Lord Jesus Christ, we see him uh, walking by the Sea of Galilee in verse 18 and he sees two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother. And we read in verse 19, he said unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. 
probably four, maybe nearly five months, or three to four months has taken place, could be nearly five months, has taken place before the, before the Lord Jesus Christ recontacts Peter and Andrew who had gone back to their fishing business and calls them to follow him. You see, Peter, Andrew and John at this time recorded in John 1, although they readily accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as the Messiah, they weren't really ready yet to receive that call to forsake all and follow him. But Philip was. Philip received his call there and then. Philip was a man who was ready to receive that call at that time. And although Peter, Andrew and John returned to their fishing business after they'd met the Lord here in John 1, it seems that Philip stayed with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see that that, that Philip really is quite an outstanding man in many ways. And that will become more apparent as we go on down through this chapter. We read in verse 44, Now Philip was of Bethsaida the city of Andrew and Peter. You know, we read in, uh, in, um, in Luke where the call of John comes, we find that John also was at Bethsaida. In fact, John, James, Andrew and Peter were all partners in a fishing business. They all worked together. So we find that, 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 that out of these first five disciples, four of them came from the city of Bethsaida and the other one came from Cana, which is only a, a little way away. All of them were from Galilee. Bethsaida means the house of fishing. And there out of the house of fishing, these first uh, disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ were going. And Philip would have no doubt gained much help and comfort from the fact that, 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 that Peter, James and John, Peter, uh, Andrew and John, were all from the city of Bethsaida. Now we find that Philip, like Andrew, was anxious to gain another convert for the Lord Jesus Christ. We read in verse 45 that Philip findeth Nathanael. Now, when we come to look at Nathanael as he's presented in the Scriptures, we find from John chapter 21 and verse 2 that Nathanael came from Cana. John 21 verse 2 There were together Simon, Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee. So it would seem possible that the little company now had travelled up to Galilee possibly they'd arrived at the city of Cana. And the first thing Philip wants to do is to contact his friend Nathanael. And so Philip findeth Nathanael. The same word again, the same tense as we've seen. Philip sought out Nathanael and he finds him and he says unto him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write. Notice the way that Philip speaks. Him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did speak. If it clearly indicates that Philip was a student of Moses and the prophets. 
And it indicates too that so was Nathaniel, and Philip knew it. No doubt these two had spent many hours together, many pleasant, profitable hours together, studying Moses and the prophets. And now Philip's able to burst in on Nathaniel and say, look, we found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write. You see, we see these two men were both students of the law and the prophets. We find that they're two men that through the gospel records are, are associated together. A very close friendship seems to have developed between these two men, Philip and Nathaniel. We don't actually read the name Nathaniel very much. In fact, I don't think it's mentioned in the other gospel records. But we do read of an apostle by the name of Bartholomew. And it seems that Nathaniel was Bartholomew. You see, Bartholomew means the son of Talmai. It seems that it's probably not a name at all. It just indicates his father. It marks him out as the, as the son of Talmai. And wherever we read of, of Bartholomew in the other gospel records, he's nearly always coupled with Philip. We nearly always read Philip and Bartholomew. And it seems that Bartholomew was Nathaniel and that these two men had a very close, intimate friendship one with the other. They were united together in the bonds of the truth. The name Nathaniel means the gift of God. The name Talmai means abounding in thorough, which implies a ploughed field. So here's the gift of Yahweh that was produced out of a ploughed field. And it, it speaks of the, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the harvest that is produced out of the seed that is sown. It also implies that Nathaniel was a man whose heart had been well prepared to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. And indeed, his heart was very well prepared to receive his Lord and Master as we find in the first chapter of John testifies. At the end of verse 45, we note how uh, Philip introduces, or not introduces, how, how Philip identifies the Messiah. He says, look, we found him and, uh, of whom Moses wrote in the law of prophets. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. It's quite un- unusual really, particularly that here in the Gospel of John, John doesn't even record the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ of Mary. And yet here we find Philip identifying him as Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. But when we realise that Cana was only about five miles away from Nazareth, we realise that Nazareth was well known to Nathaniel. It could be that Nathaniel would have known of certain families in the town of Nazareth. It could be that he'd even known of the family of Joseph. We don't know that. It could be. But Philip is careful to point out to Nathaniel that the Messiah is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So he not only identifies the town from which Jesus was 
uh, come, but he also identifies the very family from which he has sprung. And, and the possibility is that the family may have, or Nathaniel may have heard of the family of Joseph. We're not implying that he, he, he knew it closely or intimately. But the son of Joseph might have identified the family from which the Lord Jesus Christ had come. But you see, to accept that the Messiah of Israel, for whom he longed and prayed, had come from so near at hand, the next door town, from, from a, a family in that next door town, it was just a little bit much for him to, to accept at that time. And after all, Nazareth. Nathaniel well knew that nothing great had ever happened at Nazareth. Nothing of any virtue or prominence had ever come out of Nazareth. How could it be that the Messiah had been there, living there, growing up in that town so close to his own home and he'd never even known it? And it was just a little bit much for him to accept, accept at that time. And after all, from his knowledge of the, of the prophets, he would have expected the Messiah to spring from other regions in the land of Israel. But it's interesting to notice the way that Philip answers Nathaniel, as Nathaniel says that can any good thing come out of Nazareth. It's almost as if Nathaniel is going to sweep away Philip's proposition of something that is completely impossible and unacceptable. But Philip doesn't try and argue with him. Philip doesn't try and reason with him. Philip just says, come and see. You know, and those very statements, come and see, it indicates Philip's absolute confidence in his master's ability to sweep all doubts from Nathaniel's mind. You see, Philip is absolutely 100% convinced that this one is the Messiah of Israel. And he's got absolute confidence that his Lord and Master will be able to sweep all of Nathaniel's doubt aside in a moment of time. So he doesn't try and argue with, with Nathaniel. He just merely says, come and see. We find that Nathaniel followed his advice. And Nathaniel leaves his position from under the fig tree and goes with Philip to meet this one whom Philip has claimed is the Messiah of Israel. And in verse 47 we read that Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him. Jesus knew what was going on. And Jesus was doubtless waiting for this moment to come. And he saw Nathanael coming. And as sees Nathaniel and Philip drawing close, the Lord Jesus Christ very carefully, I believe, chose his words. He didn't really say very much to Nathaniel at all. In fact, his first words weren't spoken to Nathaniel. They were said of Nathaniel. But doubtless the Lord meant Nathaniel to hear them. He didn't really say very much at all. He merely said, Behold, an Israelite indeed in, in, in whom is no God. 
And then he says in verse 48, Before Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Didn't really say very much. But you know, what he did say had an extremely profound effect upon Nathanael. You know, in verse 46, we read Nathanael saying, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? In verse 49 we hear him saying, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God. Thou art the King of Israel. There's a dramatic change that's taken place in Nathaniel. Nathaniel's filled with doubt in verse 46. In verse 49 all that doubt is swept aside. And he is absolutely confident that he's standing before the Son of God and the one who is destined to be the King of Israel. They had those words of Christ, although not very many, had a very profound effect upon Nathaniel. And as we look at Christ's words and we see Nathaniel's reaction, it is quite evident that Christ's words conveyed much to Nathaniel. And I believe Nathaniel recognised from the words of the Lord Jesus Christ that Christ had penetrated his thoughts, that Christ had been tuned in to his meditation and prayer that had taken place under that fig tree. Now I want to quote to you now from writing from Brother John Carter. We've quoted it on the sheet here. Um, It's from page 37 of John Carter's book, The Gospel of John. I believe that Brother Carter here gives us the key to unlock the, uh, the, the reason for Nathaniel's change. We read, as Nathaniel approaches, Jesus makes a remark which shows he had knowledge of his thoughts. And Nathaniel asks in surprise, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered that before Philip called him, while he was under the fig tree, he had seen him. Such powers convinced Nathanael that Philip's judgment was right. Here was the one of whom the prophets had spoken, and he exclaimed, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. There are two clues to Nathanael's thoughts the words of Jesus when he came to him and the promise Jesus made after his confession. Behold an Israelite indeed in whom is no God. Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. Verily, verily, I say unto you, hereafter ye shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jacob means supplanter, but Jacob's name was changed to Israel, a prince with God. Jacob was not free from guile, but as Israel prevailed to the obtaining of the blessing. He was encouraged in the conflict with self by the vision of the ladder and the promise that God would be with him. 
Nathaniel meditating on the lives of the fathers, the promises to them and their victories, and desiring to share with them the share with them the heirship of God's promises and God's friendship, is arrested by the stranger breaking in on his thoughts and telling him he was an Israelite free from God. The association of ideas is carried on and the subject of Nathaniel's meditation further exhibited by the promise that he and the disciples would see Jacob's vision of the ladder fulfilled in Jesus and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Jacob had the vision of Bethel, the house of God. Here was the house of God, the temple which the Lord pitched, and here was to be seen communication established with God and an ever open heaven. It was by faith that this was seen, faith based upon the words and works of Jesus. And so Brother Carter there as he comments upon these verses points out that the the dramatic change took place in Nathaniel because the words of the Lord Jesus Christ must have been related to the thoughts that he had in his mind as he was sheltered under that fig tree. And he suggests that Nathaniel was there under that fig tree meditating upon the life of Jacob, the life, uh, the change of Jacob, the promises that God made to Jacob and desiring to be a sharer of those promises that God made to Jacob. They were the objects of Nathaniel's meditation and prayer as he was there under the fig tree. And being called from the fig tree by Philip, we find that, that, that Nathaniel uh, is confronted with the Lord Jesus Christ who thus reveals to him the very thoughts of his heart. And, that, and as he came to realise that, he recognised that this could be none other than the Son of God. Now as Brother Carter suggests, we believe that Nathaniel had been meditating about Jacob. We go for a moment back to Genesis chapter 27. And in Genesis 27 we read Isaac's words concerning Jacob. Isaac here is speaking to Esau who had just lost the blessing. Genesis 27 and verse 35 And he said, Thy brother came with subtlety and hath taken away thy blessing. And he said, Is not his, his Is not he rightly named Jacob for he has supplanted me these two times? And so Isaac says in verse 35 Thy brother came with subtlety. You know in the Septuagint version in the Greek Old Testament that word subtlety there is the word dolos a word which means guile or deceit. And it's the very same word that the Lord Jesus Christ used when he said, Behold an Israelite in whom there is no dolos, no guile or deceit. But you see, Jacob ultimately obtained the blessing. 
But first he had to cast off that guile. That dolos had to be purged out of him. And it was by the purging out of the casting off of that guile and by Jacob coming to place his total dependence upon Yahweh that Jacob became Israel. And you see, as Nathaniel had been meditating upon these things in the life of Jacob, and now he's called to come before the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he approaches the Lord Jesus Christ, he hears the Lord saying to his disciples around, speaking of Nathaniel coming under him, he says, Behold, an Israelite in truth, in whom is no guile. You know, the word Israelite is interesting really. As Brother Carter points out there in the, uh, um, what, what it is, the, the third paragraph, he points out that, that Israel means a prince with God. And so it does, it's quite right. You know, when we look up the meaning of Israel in, in uh, Gethsemius, for example, Gethsemius will tell us it means a soldier of God. A.V. Davidson says the word Israel means a wrestler or a prince with God. In actual fact, we find it derived from a root to prevail. And in the chapter there where Jacob receives the name Israel, it is stated there because he has prevailed with God. And so you see, it means a prince with God as one who has wrestled and prevailed. He's a soldier of God. Now, when we read in the Apocalypse, to him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life. It's as if the Lord is saying to him who is a true Israelite will I give to, to uh, eat of the fruit of the tree of life and so forth. You see, an, an, an Israelite was an overcomer. He was one who had wrestled and obtained a blessing from Yahweh. But you see, Jacob had to be purged from that guile. He had to learn that he could not obtain that blessing by earthly means. And it wasn't until Jacob learnt that lesson that he became Israel. That he became an overcomer of, of himself. And then he obtained the blessing. And as, the, as Nathaniel was coming to the Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus said, Behold a true Israelite in whom there is no dolos, no guile. He was saying, look, here's a true Israelite. Here's a true wrestler with God, not wrestling for the things of God. And one who is not seeking that, to gain that blessing by earthly means, but he's doing it by a genuine trust and reliance on Yahweh. That's really what the Lord Jesus Christ was saying about Nathaniel. You know, we, we read in the second chapter of Romans and, and, and the ninth chapter of Romans that a true Jew, a true Israelite, is one who is an Israelite within because he's wrestling and battling with himself. Not like Jacob originally was wrestling and battling with his brother. 
He had to come to wrestle with himself before he became an Israelite indeed. But when he learnt that lesson and that deceit was purged out of him, he became, he received the name of Israel. You know, and, and, and as Nathaniel comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, these are the things he comments on because he knows that they're under the victory. Nathaniel had been meditating on the life of Jacob and the glorious promises that were made to Jacob. And he declared him to be a true Israelite, one who was wrestling with himself and not with his brethren, and one who was seeking Yahweh's blessing by true, uh, the, the right means, by reliance and trust upon God and not by earthly means. Yeah. approaches the Lord Jesus Christ and he fears the Lord Jesus Christ saying this behold an Israelite indeed in whom is no God Nathaniel is completely taken back by such a commendation from the mouth of, 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 of one who was a stronger you see for someone to be able to make that statement about anybody, they would have to have a very close, intimate knowledge of a person. They'd have to know them very closely and intimately to be able to make such a commendation of a person. Nathaniel said, well, how can he make this statement? You see, and there in, um, in John chapter 1, we see that the, the Nathaniel's reply to the words of the Lord are along these lines. He says, uh, in verse, he says in verse 48, Nathanael said unto him, Whence knowest thou me? How do you know me? And the word knowest there is the word gnosko, concerning which Bullinger states that this word denotes a personal and true relation between the person knowing and the object known. And you see, such a relationship would have to exist before you could say of a person you saw walking up the street, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no God. You would have to have a very close knowledge of that person to be able to make such a statement. And Nathaniel's completely taken He said, well, how can he make a statement like that? And the Lord's, um, the, the, the Lord's reply was, Before the Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. The word saw there, it's a word that appears several times in these last few verses of, of John 1, but a word... Uh, Idom or some such word uh, concerning which Bullinger says not the mere act of seeing but the actual perception of the object and it refers to the mind and the thoughts so it's not just a matter of standing there and seeing someone walk up the street it's a matter of actually perceiving what sort of a person that was 
And so you see, in, in answer to, the, to, Philip, to, to Nathaniel's question, how do you have such a close, intimate knowledge of me? He says, look, when you were under the fig tree, I perceived what sort of person you were. And you know, what was going on under that fig tree? Well, the fig tree was a place where people used to resort for quiet thought and meditation and prayer. The fig tree uh, is a tree when left alone, its branches will come right down to the ground. And getting right inside under that fig tree, it's almost as if you're in a concealed little room shut away from the world outside. And that's where Nathaniel had gone. He'd gone to get away quiet on his own for study, meditation and prayer, no doubt. You know, the fig tree is a symbol of Israel. And there was Nathaniel, sheltered, under, as it were, under the hope of Israel, engaged in meditation and prayer about the life of Jacob and God's promises to him. And now all of a sudden, he, he, he's called out from there by Philip. Philip knew where to go and find him. Philip knew where he would find Nathaniel. And Philip goes and finds him and calls him out. He's brought out of that, brought up the street, and he's brought before the Lord Jesus Christ. And now he finds that the Lord Jesus Christ is revealing to him the very thoughts of his heart. The Lord Jesus Christ is telling him that while he was there under that fig tree engaged in meditation and prayer, he says, I perceive what sort of person you were. I was tuned into your thoughts and your prayers and the very statement of the Lord an Israelite indeed related so closely to the things upon which Nathaniel had doubtless been meditating was enough to convince that Nathaniel that the man before him was able to read the very thoughts of his heart and who else could do that than the Son of God. Only God can read the thoughts and intents of the heart. And Nathaniel recognised that the man standing before him, revealing to him the very things he'd been thinking, was one who had a very close relationship with the Father in the heavens. And all his doubts were swept aside in a moment. And Nathaniel accepted that there before him was the one of whom Moses wrote in the law and the prophets. And we read, and going on through the chapter, we find that these things concerning Nathaniel's thoughts are confirmed by the last three verses of this chapter. And in verses 49, 50 and 51, we, show, we, we are shown that Nathaniel recognised that the man standing before him was the seed promised to Jacob. And we find that Christ's further promise to Nathaniel was not only a personal assurance that Nathaniel would have a place in the kingdom of God, but it provides a glorious exposition of that vision of Jacob's ladder recorded in Genesis chapter 28 and verses 11 to 21. We just turn back to Genesis chapter 28 We'll have a look at what was actually revealed to Jacob in that chapter.
in verses 11 to 21 of Genesis 28. We know the story of Jacob has fled from Esau. We read in verse 11, he lighted upon a certain place and tarried there all night because the sun was set. And he took up the stones of that place and put them for his pillow and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached the heaven. And behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And behold, Yahweh stood above it and said, I am Yahweh, Elohim of Abraham thy father, the Elohim of Isaac, the land whereon thou liest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west, and to the east, and to the north, and to the south. And in thee and in thy seed shall all families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with thee, and I will keep thee in all places whither thou goest, and will bring thee again into this land, for I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken of to thee. And Jacob awoke out of his sleep and said, Surely Yahweh is in this place. And I knew it not. And he was afraid and said, How dreadful is this place. This is none other but the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And Jacob rose up early in the morning and took the stone that he had put for his pillow and set it up for a pillar and poured oil upon the top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. For the name of that city was called Love at the first. And we read in verse 22, And this stone which I have set for a pillar shall be God's house, and of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give thee give the tenth unto thee. Now on the second uh, sheet, we have a quotation from Dr. Thomas from Eureka. But Dr. Thomas makes certain comments upon these things of which we've just read. <coughs> um, commenting upon verses 13 and 14, which he says comprise the gospel of the kingdom, having thus been announced to Jacob, as it had been before to Abraham, he awoke, and under the vivid impression of what he had seen and heard, took the stone upon which his head rested, and set it up for a pillar, a monumental pillar and he poured oil upon the top of it. This was the nearest approach he could make to the matter of the vision. The stone resting upon the earth and pointing upwards might represent the ladder and the oil poured upon the top of it the spirit or deity who stood above it. Thus the stone was converted into a pillar or monument which, to the mind of Jacob, would su suggest the promise he had heard in his dream. His recollection of this promise would be the monumental inscription of this pillar of stone. But when he awoke in a typical resurrection, he explained, Verily, Yahweh is in this place, and I knew it not. And he was afraid and said, How awful is this place! This is nothing else but a house of Elohim. This is a gate of heavens. Hence, that this idea might be perpetuated, he says, Yahweh shall be to me for Elohim, and this stone which I have set for a pillar shall be a house of Elohim. Jacob's 
stone pillar then was typical of a house of Elohim to be set up after he awakes from his sleep of centuries. When he awakes, he will find himself in an awful time and place. The gate of heaven opens and the house of Elohim in manifestation, but he nevertheless without dismay, what he saw in vision, he will then see in fact. Heaven opens and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. John 1 verse 51. So there we see uh, how Brother Thomas comments upon this vision. He makes certain comments concerning that stone that Jacob set up for a pillar. That stone first supported his head in the night. In the morning he set it upright as a memorial of the ladder that he had seen in that vision. He anointed it as a memorial of the Spirit uh, of God that he had seen at the top of that ladder. And furthermore, as he set it up, he, he said that that stone would be a house of Elohim or a house of mighty ones. And that's what Brother Thomas tells us concerning this vision of Genesis chapter 28. <coughs> it's interesting perhaps to take a few further points from this chapter. We read there that, that um, of the stone that Jacob rested his head upon and after set up for a pillar. The word for stone is the word eben in the Hebrew from a root to build. And it's related to the Hebrew word for a son. Both the word stone and the word son are both related to this word to build. For as a man, a builder, builds a house with bricks, fitting the bricks or stones together, so a family is built with sons. Now Jacob saw that stone that he set up, I believe, as representing the seed that was promised. That individual seed that was to be expanded into a multitude and spread abroad over all the earth. He saw it, I believe, as that seed who would become a mighty family. Because as he set up that stone, he said, this will be a house of mighty ones. And so as he saw it was a stone with which one might build a temple, so he saw it typical of a son who, with whom, from whom Yahweh will build a living spiritual temple of living stone. And so he saw that pillar of stone, I believe, representing that seed that had been promised, a seed that God would provide, as promised in Genesis 3.15, a seed that would be the Son of God. You know, and as Nathaniel connects together the very things that he had been meditating, the things that the Lord Jesus Christ has revealed, he says, Thou art the Son of God. He saw him as the one typified by that pillar that Jacob set up. And he says, Thou art the King of Israel. Because as we learn from Genesis 49, uh, Jacob clearly recognised that that promised seed would be a king. He said how the scepter would not depart from Judah. 
nor the lawgiver from between his feet. And so as Jacob recognised that seed typified in that pillar, he recognised that that seed would be a king and develop a house of mighty ones, so Nathaniel puts all these things together and he says, Thou art the Son of God. Thou art the King of Israel. In Genesis 28 and verse 17 we read, when he awoke, as Brother Thomas says, typical of resurrection, he, he, uh, he says in verse 17, how dreadful is this place? This is none other than the house of Elohim. This is the gate of heaven. That word dreadful there, it's a word which is used consider a considerable number of times in the Old Testament speaking of the fear of God. That's the sort of fear that Jacob had. It was a, a, a deep reverential fear in view of the things that had happened there. Now he says, and as he, he says, this is none other but the house of mighty ones. And as Brother John Carter pointed out, as Nathaniel stood before the Lord Jesus Christ, he was standing before the one who was the temple of the living God, the one who was to be the foundation stone in the building of that house of mighty ones. And as Jacob saw that typified in that stone, Nathaniel saw it in the man that stood before him. But you see, it goes on in verse 17, and this is the gate of heaven. I notice the way that Brother Thomas uh, rendered that. He says, this is nothing else but a house of Elohim. This is a gate of the heavens. That word gate there, it's the word shah. It means an opening. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ told Nathaniel, he says, in the future you will see heaven open. And Jacob said, this is none other than a, than a gate or an opening of the heavens. You know, and there as, he, as Jacob in that vision, he'd seen, he'd been laying on the earth, but he'd seen a ladder extending up to heaven. And that ladder was a connecting medium between heaven and earth. And the heaven was opened at the top of it. And that ladder was a connecting medium between heaven and earth. You know, we go back to, to John chapter 1. In verse 49, John, uh, Nathaniel says to, to, to the Lord, Thou art the Son of God, acknowledging his heavenly origin. In verse 51, the Lord says to Nathaniel, I am the Son of Man. He doesn't use those exact words, but he identifies himself as the son of man, showing his earthly origin. And here in this one, heaven and earth were connected together. He had come from heaven in that his father was in heaven, but he was born upon the earth in that he was the son of Mary. And there was the connecting medium between heaven and earth, just as that ladder in Jacob's vision connected the heaven and the earth. And we know, of course, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the mediator between God and man. And after he's 
uh, perfect offering, he ascended into the heavens. So that we today have access into the heavens through the Lord Jesus Christ, through prayer of course. And in the future the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return to this earth. And Nathaniel will then see far greater things than he'd seen up to that point of time. We go back to John chapter 1. And in, uh, in verse um, 50, or verse 51, we, we see, And he said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Verily, verily. In the Gospel of John, we, we always find, nearly always find that word verily repeated. It's a word which means the word amen. It means truly or surely. And in repeating that word to Nathaniel, the Lord is emphasising the absolute certainty of the things that, that, that he is saying. Truly, truly I say unto you, hereafter ye shall see the heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And in the future time, when Nathaniel wakes from sleep, just as Jacob woke from his sleep in that, on, the, on that morning, Nathaniel will then see the Lord Jesus Christ enthroned as a glorious king in the city of Jerusalem. And he will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. He will see a union established between heaven and earth. And he will see how all will be channeled through, his, through the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God who was standing before Nathaniel at that time. And in the future time we know that the, the, the earth, Paul tells us, the world, Paul tells us in Hebrews 2, will not be subject under the angels. But we know it will be subject under the Lord Jesus Christ and the saints. But there will be continuous union there between the Father in heaven and the Son upon the earth in Jerusalem. And the angels of God will be continually ascending and descending upon the Son of Man and all the affairs of earth will be administered through the Son of Man. But that contact and that union with the Father in the heavens will be maintained. And Nathaniel was told that he will see that. He said, you think, you, you, you th you think you've heard marvellous things because I can show you what you're thinking at this time. He says, you will have a place in the kingdom of God. You will see a unity established between heaven and earth channeled through the Son of Man. And there will the Son of Man be uh, as that antitypical ladder connecting heaven and earth <coughs> with the angels of God administering everything through the Son and filling the whole earth ultimately with the glory of God. And so we see that the Lord Jesus Christ, not only did he reveal to Nathaniel the thoughts of his heart, 
But he gave Nathaniel also a beautiful exposition of those things that were actually revealed to Jacob there in Genesis chapter 28. And can there be any further, further proof needed that that was the subject of Nathaniel's thoughts as he sheltered there under the fig tree, absorbed in, in, in study, meditation and prayer, and suddenly Philip comes to him and calls him out of the secrecy of that place. He's taken out and he's standing off standing before a man which reveals to him the very thoughts of his heart and gives him the very answer to his prayers. And every element of doubt was swept from Nathaniel's mind as he accepted that one before him as the Son of God and the King of Israel. And so Nathaniel becomes the fifth convert to the Lord Jesus Christ. As we stated, his name means the gift of Yahweh. And indeed, uh, we see that the Lord Jesus Christ in those five men surrounded, uh, that have now been given unto him, he receives them as a gift, a gift of grace from his heavenly Father we see that there were many different temperaments among those men. There was the impetuousness of Peter. There was the, 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 the zeal of John, who at a later time wanted to bring fire down from heaven and consume the Samaritans because they wouldn't accept his Lord and Master. There was Philip, the, 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 the timid, retiring man, who needed, to be, who needed to be drawn out and encouraged. There's Nathaniel, the deep student, and... and uh, uh, one who meditated deeply upon the things of God's word. We find now that these five men are being drawn together around the Lord Jesus Christ. Men who are going to be transformed by the power of that man's word. And men who are going to form foundation stones in the temple of living stones that the Lord Jesus Christ is uh, soon to put together upon this earth. We find that the week, first week of the Lord's ministry carries on into chapter 2. We read in chapter 2 and verse 1 and the third day we believe that's the third day from the last day mentioned which is verse 43 which makes it the seventh day of that first week. And we read in that chapter of a marriage that took place in Canaan. And the Lord Jesus Christ and his disciples were present there. We find that the Lord Jesus Christ performed his first miracle at that, um, at that wedding feast. And we find that, that this miracle is described in verse 11 of chapter 2 as the beginning of his miracles. In the Gospel of John, we find that the word for miracles is a different word that is used in other places. It's a word which means a sign. And John records eight particular signs of John. There is a very good exposition of these eight signs written by our brother John Ullman and obtainable from the library and we would recommend that every one of you avail yourselves of the opportunity to, to read that exposition of these signs. 
Particularly perhaps would we suggest at this time that you read his exposition of this first time recorded in John chapter 2 verses 1 to 11 because that will be the subject of our class in two weeks time if the Lord will. But through the Gospel of John there are eight signs recorded. Now we have uh, just listed those eight signs on the bottom of the sheet there. Chapter 2 verses 1 to 11, the water turned to wine. Chapter 4 verses 46 to 50, the ruler's son healed. Chapter 5 verses 1 to 16, the impotent man made to walk. Chapter 6 verses 1 to 14, the feeding of the 5,000. Chapter 6 verses 15 to 21, the calming of the storm. Chapter 9, 1 to 14, the blind man sees. Chapter 11, 1 to 44, the raising of Lazarus. Chapter 21, verses 1 to 14, the great harvest of fish. Now these are all signs teaching lessons concerning the work and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not going to uh, make a particular study of these eight signs on their own. That, that, that can be followed through in the book The Eight Signs of John if anyone wants to do so. We will merely take these signs as we come to them in the, in the unfolding of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it is interesting to see the relationship of those eight signs together and see how they are a revelation of those things that will be accomplished through the Lord Jesus Christ. But as we have said, our next class we will enter into John chapter 2 and we will consider that first sign, the turning of the water into wine and we will see how on that occasion the Lord started to manifest forth his glory. Time doesn't permit us to, to commence the consideration of that now so we will leave the class at this stage and take it up from there in two weeks' time. In the meantime, may it be that we might try to learn the lessons that such men as Philip and Nathaniel have to offer. Let us, like them, seek deeply into the pages of Yahweh's Word that we might be better prepared to understand the full significance of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ.